Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I am your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 19 of my series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars-to-be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. Well, the Exhibitor's Herald said that the 7th Annual Wampus Frolic and Ball, held on Saturday, February 25th, 1928, was characterized as the greatest ever by that organization, they also had to admit that attendance didn't meet expectations. Though 3,000 tickets were available, several of the box seats were empty, and many $10 tickets, that's about $180 in today's money according to Google, went unsold, as that was double the price of previous year's tickets. The box seats went for between $180 and $250. It's a bit unfortunate that sales weren't quite as expected, as just a few weeks before, the Wampus had voted to donate 40% of their profits from the Frolic to the Motion Picture Relief Fund. Founded in 1921, the fund was first conceived by Mary Pickford to help industry colleagues who had fallen on hard times. Now known as the Motion Picture and Television Fund, in the century since the organization was founded, it has helped countless people in need of support who made their careers in the entertainment industry. It includes the operation of a long-term care home. Variety reported, Wampus Frolic in the Ambassador Auditorium, Feb 25th, grossed only $23,000, with expenses $14,000. The Wampus share of the $9,000 net was $5,400, with the Motion Picture Relief Fund beneficiary of the remaining $3,600. As a result of the poor biz, it is expected the frolic of 1929 will be in San Francisco. Still, the VIPs were there in droves. The co-master of ceremonies were comedic actor Charlie Murray, and teenager Jackie Coogan, who held court over the likes of Mary Pickford, who bought the first box seats undoubtedly to drum up interest on behalf of the fund, Douglas Fairbanks, Jack Dempsey, Dolores Del Rio, Clara Bow, Tom Mix, Ronald Coleman, Charlie Chaplin, Colleen Moore, Lionel and Jack Barrymore, and many, many others. Thirty different vaudeville-style acts entertained the crowd, including a rare live appearance by the R-Gang kids. So while there were some empty seats, at least those there had a pretty good show. And if they stuck around afterwards, they even got to see a fight! Lionel Barrymore was chatting with Owen Moore and Myron Selznick, brother of David O., on the lawn of the Ambassador Hotel after the Wampus Frolic wrapped up when his brother Jack Barrymore interrupted the conversation. Having imbibed at the ball, Jack was in a contentious mood and decided out of nowhere to insult Myron and challenge him to a fight. Though at first the others tried to, you know, get Jack to just fuck off, he kept persisting. What he didn't know, though, was that Myron was an accomplished amateur boxer. Jack received a swift couple of punches before his brother and Owen were able to separate the two. With a black eye and a hangover, 
Jack disappeared for several days. I think I won the fight, Myron was quoted. But of course that wasn't the only excitement at the frolic. There was also the introduction of the 13 Wapus Baby Stars of 1928. They were Lena Besquet, Flora Bramley, Sue Carroll, Anne Christie, June Collier, Alice Day, Sally Ehlers, Audrey Ferris, Dorothy Gulliver, Gwen Lee, Molly O'Day, Ruth Taylor, and Lupe Velez. Did any of them win their fight to stardom? Well, let's find out. Alice Day Elder sister to Wampus Baby Star of 1926, Marceline Day, Alice arrived in Hollywood in 1923, about a year before Marceline did. She, Alice, not Marceline, was about 17 or 18 when she signed her first contract with Max Sennett. He quickly put her to work in dozens of shorts. Early on, she played in support of actors like Ralph Graves and Ben Turpin, and frequently served as Harry Langdon's leading lady. After a couple of years of proving herself to be a charismatic and capable performer, Alice was growing in popularity and in profile. When Mac put her in her own short, Tea for Two, in 1925, it was advertised as one of a string of Alice Day comedies. Alice Day, the sweet-faced charmer who has appeared in so many Senate comedies during the past year, now a comedy star in her own right, announced an ad for the series in Motion Picture News targeting theater owners. When Senate picks a star, he picks one who has earned the name. Alice Day has. As delightful a little lady as ever stepped before a camera, in real comedy stories with first-class casts and oodles of gags. You're picking peaches when you book the Alice Day comedies. T for Two, that's T as in golf, not the beverage, was followed by installations called Cold Turkey, Love and Kisses, A Sweet Pickle, The Soap Suds Lady, in which Alice had to wear just a barrel, Hotsy Totsy, and The Love Sunday, among others. Most of these shorts, which were a series but not serialized, centered around Alice playing a plucky young lady, often a shop girl or working in a laundry, as in the Soap Suds Lady, looking for love and finding all kinds of comedic mishaps on the way. Or as plucky young brides navigating quirky situations and finding all kinds of comedic mishaps on the way. Lots of comedic mishaps is my point paired with a sweet but modern heroine. Youth, sweetness, and sparkling humor are the ingredients Alice brings, according to Moving Picture World. That Mac was starring Alice in her own shorts was a bit unusual, as he typically kept the women on his roster in supporting roles opposite bigger male stars. A notable exception was much earlier with Mabel Normand, but that's not really a comparable situation as they were true collaborators. It wasn't a boss-employee situation as it was with Alice. Anyway, in 1926, when her younger sister was named a Wampus Baby Star, 
Alice was by almost any measure the more successful and better known of the two. But Marceline was in features and dramas at that, and those do tend to get more prestige and attention. Later that year, Alice did make her leap into features. Alice Day, newest Max Senate star to go into features, makes good in comedy drama, said the moving picture world about his New York wife, 1926. It was with B.P. Schulberg's preferred pictures, not a film to launch her into stardom, but it was still a step in the right direction. The review noted, In addition to being a very attractive little lady, Alice Day is an excellent actress and should duplicate in features her success in comedies. Despite this promise, Alice continued to work happily in shorts at Senate, for a while, until a line was crossed that she simply could not ignore. In 1927, plans were announced for a feature-length film called The Romance of the Bathing Girl, or The Romance of the Senate Bathing Girl, sources vary. It was to star Alice, who of course was Mac's number one girl player at this point, really the only one he was trusting to helm her own projects. Though she was his top actress, Alice never was one of his famous bathing beauties, and so she was quite shocked when she learned what the studio expected her to wear. Venus of Max Sennett's constellation never wore tights and refused to appear practically nude, reported Moving Picture World in their September 10, 1927 issue. Alice had always played young ladies on the more wholesome end of the scale, and she initially agreed to wear a dancer's leotard that had tights going down to her knees. Then, and I found this rather upsetting, while being forced to model this version of her costumes in front of a group of all-male Senate executives, the head costumer attempted to cut the tights shorter while she was wearing them to expose more of her thighs. Alice, who must have been mortified, quit the production on the spot. The role was later given to Wampus Baby Star of 1925, Madeline Herlock, but the film was never actually completed. Luckily for Alice, wanting to stay true to her image and her morals as someone who would not appear practically nude paid off, at least in the short term. She was signed to a short contract with MGM later that year, who announced that they were going to pair her opposite William Haynes. That, of course, brings us to her being named, after five years or so on the screen, as a Wampus Baby star. 1928 did bring with it the smart set with Billy Haynes and some freelance roles. More than for her roles, however, she was in the fan magazines for gossip about her on-again, off-again romance with Universal Studios heir Carl Lemley Jr., that and the gossip about her refusal to appear practically nude. The girl who wouldn't undress, read a headline in Motion Picture Classics February 1929 issue. It features not a photo of Alice, but a caricature, Large, pleading eyes, a deeply worried expression. In the piece, which veers into some very creepy territory, 
They say, that's the trick, to be able to say no while looking as if she's saying yes. Well, that means money in Hollywood. By all the rules, this little day should be one of the yes girls. She's cuddly and cute and gentle. She looks like yes and keeps on saying no until strong men gnash their teeth and fume and pound their desks and pace. Much good it does em. If it had just an ounce more self-awareness, the piece would be a clear indictment of victim-blaming, but it was 1929, so don't hold your breath. At least it doesn't actually suggest that she should have gone along with the costume that she was uncomfortable with, but it does say that refusing gave her a reputation for temperament and things like that. And it heavily implies that since Alice looks the way that she does, she should expect men to ask her to take her clothes off. Alice did continue to work steadily and got some attention for her early sound pictures like 1929's Times Square, a low-budget Gotham Pictures production that promised human dialogue with unique sound effects. And the Warner Brothers musical Is Everybody Happy? that same year. She got to sing a song. But she slowed down her work considerably after she got married in 1930, not Carl Lemley Jr., making her final film in 1932, having never actually risen to the heights of proper stardom. She had two sons, one of whom is introduced to the public in a 1932 issue of Movie Mirror thusly, Remember pretty little Alice Day of the Silence? Alice is Mrs. Jack Cohn now, and this is her son, Richard E. Cohn. I'm sorry, it's just so professional. Have you met my baby, Richard E. Cohn? So no, while Alice Day did pretty well for herself, especially in her early days at the Senate lot before they got awful and ruined everything, she never became a star in her own right. The Wampus got close, but they missed the mark. Ruth Taylor Opportunity? Yes! exclaimed Motion Picture News in their November 7, 1925 issue. Max Sennett, the comedy producer, takes a healthy swing this week at the pessimistic individuals who say that the studio door is closed to newcomers and that the field is overcrowded. If you think the field is overcrowded, just try casting a picture, advises the comedy veteran. The other day we interviewed a hundred girls to find the type we wanted, something of the order of Alice Day. I was astonished to find what a scarcity there is of this type of girl. Nine out of ten today look alike. They have their hair cut in the same fashion. Their clothes are similar in style and color. They even carry themselves in the same manner that is strangely standardized. Out of one hundred girls, only one answered our requirements. This was a little girl of whom I had never heard, who has youth, vivacity, refinement, and a natural talent for acting, Ruth Taylor. Naturally, we signed her to a contract at once. Likely born around 1905, although sources vary as was her want, 
Ruth Taylor made it to Hollywood by way of Michigan around 1924 when she began working as an extra. As Motion Picture News said, she caught the eye of one Max Sennett the following year and was signed not to be simply a bathing beauty, but also to appear in a whole whack of his comedy shorts. Ruth showed up opposite mustachioed comedian Billy Bevan in her first credited appearance in the short Butterfingers in 1925. Billy isn't well-known today, but he was an affable comedic presence in literally hundreds of shorts and features from the 1920s to the 1950s. Certainly, for a newcomer like Ruth, being paired with him right away probably felt like a nice jumping-off point. Not wildly intimidating like being paired with Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd, but promising nonetheless. And Ruth did seem to hold a lot of promise and much of it seemed to surround the fact that she didn't look at all like the other girls. That story from Max Sennett is used a few more times in her publicity, that he was auditioning girl after girl, and they were all just so alike, and then in came Ruth, who was, as Moving Picture World put it in June 1926, blonde, vivacious, and yet a sympathetic type. Not the sassy, dark-haired flappers that had been arriving to the lot in droves. White and gold is the only way to describe the beauty of Miss Taylor, Moving Picture World also wrote. She has that rare combination of dark gray eyes and a snow-white complexion and hair that is pure gold, like the heroine of old Norse fairy tales. It's somewhat hilarious to be exoticizing a blonde white woman, but okay. Pitcher Play tried to nail down just what Mac was talking about when he said that she was so different. Ruth may have established a distinctive type, it is said. She is that rare individual, a blonde vamp. Usually vamps are dark, you know, but Ruth has the naughty twinkle in her blue eyes that usually go with dark orbs. I guess nobody knows what color her eyes really are, but never mind that. Between 1925 and 1927, Ruth appeared in nearly 40 shorts for Senate Studio and was making a name for herself. But she was primed for bigger and better and blonder things. The Search for Lorelei Lee ran a photoplay's headline in their November 1927 issue announcing the casting for the coveted leading role in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, stated for release by Paramount in the new year. It's now hard to separate this role from Marilyn Monroe, who played Lorelei in the 1953 version. But in many ways, the 1928 silent version seemed like it would be just as iconic. The novel, which is outrageously funny, by the way, was released in 1925 and was a massive bestseller. Its author, Anita Luz, made a contract with Paramount for the screen adaptation which gave her and her husband-slash-collaborator John Emerson remarkable creative control, including casting. The photoplay piece, similar to the earlier accounts of how Ruth was discovered among the throngs, says that 200 actresses were given screen tests for the role. A couple of problems arose, like a lack of natural blondes and, more vitally, a misunderstanding from even the top performers considered for the part about Lorelei. The trouble is that Lorelei requires brains, they quoted John Emerson as saying, 
and almost everyone tested played the part as, pardon the phrase, a dumb blonde, thus in many ways missing the point. The intensive search was getting to everyone, and they had it narrowed down to three potential players. Sally Rand, Wampus Baby Star of 1927, Blanche Mahaffey, Wampus Baby Star of 1924, who was mentioned as a brunette subject to change upon notice, and Josephine Dunn, Wampus Baby Star of 1929. One final day of screen tests was arranged for six more young ladies, just to see if there is anyone left to put on the shortlist. The six called that final day looked no different from the other 200, wrote Photoplay. From ten in the morning until seven at night, five of them were tried out. Mr. Emerson went over and spoke to the sixth blonde, sitting in a crumpled, discouraged little heap in the corner. He felt he simply couldn't give another test, but the girl spoke up and said she had been waiting nine hours. The minute I heard those pipes of hers, I knew she was Lorelei, John says. She has Lorelei's drawl, Lorelei's pathos. She had Lorelei's figure and carriage, and while I don't know how she got them amid the fluffy frills of Hollywood, she had Lorelei's clothes. We tried her out. She proved her intelligence by knowing every scene in the book. She was perfect. It helped, too, that Ruth looked so much like the illustrations in the novel. Being cast in the starring role in one of the most hotly anticipated films of 1928 was more than enough to get Ruth on the Wampus Baby Stars list that year. Early reviews of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is now considered a lost film, aren't necessarily over the moon about the film, but they sound over the moon about Ruth. As the film spectator put it, whatever success Gentlemen Prefer Blondes meets with, and it will be considerable, will be due to Ruth Taylor, not to the story, the direction, or the supporting cast. She is a find. There was a lot of buzz about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Ruth was suddenly everywhere. She was on the March 1928 cover of Screenland and the July cover of Photoplay. She was peppered throughout all of the other fan magazines, too. But it was her Blondes co-star, brunette Alice White, who stole the picture. What there was to steal, it wasn't the hit everyone assumed that it would be. Ruth made just one more movie in 1928, Just Married. In this follow-up, she was called Pleasing Enough as the Synthetic Heroine by Photoplay, not the She's Perfect, What a Find vibes of her previous press. In their December 1929 issue, Pitcher Play wrote on the case of Ruth Taylor. When she was exploited in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, you couldn't pick up a magazine or newspaper that didn't have a picture or paragraph about her in it. She was the find of the year, according to the studio. However, when the smoke of the battle cleared, Alice White was marching serenely towards stardom, while Ruth listened rather vainly for the plaudits expected from her break. Released from her Paramount contract, she had spent the last few months doing very little of note, a few shorts, a B-movie for Columbia, some stage work. The case of little Ruth Taylor is an outstanding example, wrote Photoplay in their August 1930 issue in a piece called Flashing in the Pan. You know her story. 
You remember the publicity ballyhoo, the elaborate personal appearance tour, the blazing headlines, unknown, picked for the leading role in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, the interviews, the spotlight. You also remember the film. It failed for a number of reasons. The book was too well known. Lorelai Lee had found her way in too many trite imitations before the picture was released. Yet Ruth came through. She gave a good performance. It was not her fault that the picture was unsuccessful. But for this failure, Ruth took the rap. She was the fall guy. The potential star sank into photoplay oblivion through no fault of her own. Now she is in New York, married and very happy. And she was! In 1930, she officially left the business, having married a stockbroker that March. Her son was writer-comedian Buck Henry, and she remained with her husband until his death in the 1960s. Was Ruth Taylor ever a star? She was not. But she is a fascinating example of how loads of publicity and even a hotly anticipated role do not a star make. The Wampus got this one wrong. Flora Bramley British-born Flora Bramley was 21 when she was visiting relatives in Hollywood and decided to stay a while. It was the summer of 1926, and she had been performing in musical reviews for a couple of years already, including one in New York, where she was first spotted by film producer Jesse J. Goldberg with independent pictures who encouraged her to come out west if she could. Jesse arranged for his latest discovery to appear in The Dude Cowboy, distributed by FBO, a low-budget western. It really wasn't much, but it was a start. In 1927, Flora got her second-ever role, a supporting one, friend to the female lead Anne Cornwall, Wampus Baby Star of 1925, in the Buster Keaton film College. She got no special notice in the reviews. Her character didn't even have a real name. And you know, that's it to the lead-up in being named a Wampus Baby Star. Laura Bramley is one of the surprise selections, admitted Photoplay about her inclusion. She didn't expect it, and she is probably the happiest girl in the thirteen. Flora is only 18 years old and single. She started in pictures in 1926 and got her first chance with Buster Keaton in college. Well, they shaved five or six years off her age, and her first chance was that low-budget western, but the surprise factor is true. She had signed a contract with Universal and had a supporting role in the upcoming picture We Americans, but that was it as far as buzz. I mean, there was no buzz. She wasn't even, as far as I can deduce, dating a wampus guy. What she did have was a somewhat tenuous connection to influence, as her uncle was friends with Joseph Schenck, film producer, and Buster's brother-in-law. So that somewhat explains how she ended up in college and the closest explanation for her baby star's designation. But neither college nor we Americans did anything special for Flora, and by the end of the year, she was freelancing with little luck. Her uncle gave her the most elegant little roadster so that she could dash from studio to studio, reported Photoplay in their April 1929 issue. She dashed in vain. 
Tiring of this unproductive pursuit, Miss Bramley finally accepted a role in the stage version of Interference. She is now appearing in stock in San Francisco. One final film appearance in 1930's The Flirting Widow, with Wampus Baby Star of 1924 Dorothy McHale and wonderful Basil Rathbone, then home to England for Flora. She actually did get good reviews for The Flirting Widow, but it was too little, too late. Too little for the Wampus, too. Audrey Ferris Hollywood Vagabond vests great faith in Audrey Ferris and believes that the time is not far distant when she will be recognized as one of the outstanding thespic assets of the films, said the Hollywood Vagabond in their June 16, 1927 issue in a piece called More New Blood in Motion Pictures. Audrey, they said, was a great example of that new blood getting interest. Born as Audrey Minerva Keller in 1909, she adopted her stepfather's name as a girl and, frustratingly, never used her amazing middle name professionally, Minerva. She arrived in Hollywood in 1926, starting as a dancer at the Ambassador Hotel and then getting work as an extra and uncredited bit player in comedy shorts all while she was still in high school. She made her feature-length debut in a poverty row melodrama called Woman's Law, 1927, and then caught the eye of Warner Brothers, who signed her as a featured player later that year. They quickly put her to work, and she appeared in a string of productions before the year was out, including two as George Jessel's leading lady. Unlike some of the others in her year, Audrey's inclusion makes a lot of sense. She was new blood, for sure, but there was work to evaluate, and Warner's seemed to be pushing her towards a very promising future. 1928 brought the Wampus list, of course, and with that, plenty of publicity. Under a photo of her wearing just a fringed shawl, Motion Picture Magazine wrote, There are girls whose charm places them only on the fringe of beauty, but Audrey Ferris is not among them. In fact, if our eyes are to be credited, the fringe of beauty is upon her. Her loveliness has, in a remarkably short time, brought her to prominence, though not without many a discouragement and more than one instance of hardship, which evidently doesn't matter to Audrey. She shows that she knows what shawls well that ends well. Get it? Because remember, she was just wearing a shawl. She was in a luxe toilet so bad. She was in the Exhibitor's Herald demonstrating a rowing machine and carving a pumpkin. Two separate pictures, not the same and in many more studio-arranged photo shoots. And she was working, quite a bit, with five credited features in 1928. It was a particularly exciting time to be getting started at Warner's, as the studio was in full sound fury on the heels of the jazz singer, which, by the way, Audrey had had an uncredited role in. Women They Talk About, in which she had a supporting role, Beware of Bachelors, in which she was the leading lady, and The Little Wildcat, her first top-billed feature, were all part talkies. Warners announced that Audrey was now in their starring ranks. Hooray! But, aside from Fancy Baggage in 1929, which co-starred one of my favorites, Myrna Loy, 
Warners didn't use Audrey as a star at all. Fancy Baggage, by the way, was a program feature and not a well-received one at that. After putting her in support of bigger stars like Dolores Costello, Warner Brothers quietly released Audrey from her contract in September 1929. So much for the exciting time at Warner's. She's become as famous as the wheel that is her namesake. It's Audrey Ferris, and like it too, she has had, if rumor may be credited, her ups and downs, cryptically noted Motion Picture Magazine a few months earlier. Some of the biggest downs would actually come a year later. I don't think that the timeline adds up for this to have had any negative impact on her time at Warner's, but it probably did shed a negative light on her lackluster freelancing career post-1929. Sometime probably in early 1930, though I couldn't find the exact records, Audrey married a man that went by the name Archer Huntington. Archer was born Archer H. Saki in 1903. His father was from Japan and his mother was white. I couldn't find a picture of Archer, but his sister Marion was a gorgeous singer-dancer, and given Archer's behavior, I get the feeling that he was similarly ridiculously good-looking and probably knew it. Archer, sometimes called Archie, had been living in New Jersey with a guy named Dr. Berman. Serving as a tutor to the doctor's children and having an affair with the doctor's wife. Mrs. Berman, who was older, very rich, and white, as well as being married, apparently bought Archer a plane and a brand new car. When her husband found out, the younger man absconded off to Hollywood where he became a stuntman. It was there that he met and married Audrey but their union was very short-lived because during an argument, he spanked her with a gin bottle, according to Variety. Other reports say that the police were called after Archer smashed a bottle over the head of their apartment building's maintenance man. Either way, it was not a good night. Dr. Berman tracked down Archer in California, naming him in the divorce suit. It all hit the newspapers, which is when the fact that Audrey's new husband was part Asian was revealed. The coverage is racist. It's hard to say 100% if this brief interracial marriage directly impacted her career opportunities, but it's hard to imagine that given the prejudices at the time that it did her reputation any particular favors. Soon, though she kept on trucking until 1935, Audrey was relegated to bit parts and Poverty Row productions when she got any work at all. Audrey Ferris's inclusion on the Wampus list may have made a lot of sense at the time, but nothing is a sure bet in Hollywood. Gwen Lee did mother want me to come to Hollywood and go into movies? I should say she didn't. I coaxed and coaxed and begged and begged and pleaded and pleaded and pleaded until I guess she got tired of listening to me and decided she'd come. 
Screenland quoted Gwen Lee as saying in their December 1925 issue. They mentioned that Gwen, who was born in November 1904 and had been trying to break into pictures for about three years by the time of publication, had just signed a contract with MGM. She made her debut in a small role in Lady of the Night that year, starring Norma Shearer. Everyone was excited about the new addition to the MGM company. Said Dorothy Manners in her gossip column in the February 1926 issue of Picture Play, If Gwen dodges French pastries and keeps the lovely figure svelte and slim, she ought to go far. What the fuck kind of thing is that to say, Dorothy? Speaking of what the fuck kind of thing is that to say, here's how Photoplay captioned a portrait of Gwen in their August 1926 issue. Introducing one of the showgirls of the movies, Gwen Lee, whose business it is to be beautiful. Like the other girls on these pages, Miss Lee makes her living playing roles that demand color, charm, and personality. She may have nothing important to contribute to the drama, but oh, what a gift to the eye. Great, don't gain any weight, and you probably have nothing important to contribute anyway, never forget it. Meanwhile, MGM was using her services, of importance or not, plenty over the next couple of years in supporting roles and more supporting roles. Well, Gwen Lee has finally gotten a break, wrote Screenland in the July 1927 issue. For the benefit of those who haven't been to Hollywood, let the professor explain just what this means. Gwen Lee, all wager, has as many friends as any young woman in cinema land. She's that kind of girl. She's tall and blonde and honest, and you can't help but like her because she doesn't know how to pose, and she couldn't be gaga if she tried. Well, that feels like a backhanded compliment, they continue noting that, though she's had plenty of small parts at MGM, landing two key roles in 1927 meant stardom was just around the corner. Adam and Evil, starring Lou Cody and Eileen Pringle, with Gwen as the second female lead, and After Midnight, another Norma Shearer film, with Gwen third build in what Screenland calls a perfect peach of a part. One of those smart-cracking, life-of-the-party gals who gets a lot of sympathy anyhow. So there you are, and Gwen Lee has a break, and everybody's happy. The Wampus were happy enough, and with a third big movie, Her Wild Oat, starring Colleen Moore, released right at the end of the year, it meant that Gwen was another Wampus baby with no small amount of momentum. In fact, she had been working so much... 14 credited roles in 1925 to 1927, and had become such a familiar face that even though it's hard to argue that she was already a star, many did argue that she was too beloved by the public to be on the Wampus list. But I can't understand their electing Gwen Lee. It's almost insulting, wrote the mystery gossip columnist The Bystander in Pitcher Play's Over the Teacups feature. It's as though they suddenly woke up and elected Norma Shearer or Lois Moran. Gwen arrived in electric lights, amid tumult and shouting, without any help from the Wampus, months ago. The public elected her. Well, the Wampus can't do right for doing wrong, of course, because when they pick total nobodies, everybody complains, too. Anyway, perhaps the bystander should have tempered their annoyance a bit. 
just as the Wampus should have tempered their expectations, because, public demand or not, MGM did not star Gwen Lee. She continued along as the second leading lady, often the other woman, usually a gold digger or a mean girl flapper or otherwise the second-rate girl in the picture. While Picture Play argued in 1929 that she was only a well-known actress and not more because she was too gorgeous to be starred, Screenland would only deem to say that she was almost beautiful. They did try to turn that into a compliment, focusing on her height and her sophistication, but still. The fact is that Gwen was a bit too good, if she ever wanted to be a star star anyway, at playing glamorous women there to root against. Gwen was popular and well-known, a frequent presence in fashion spreads and gossip columns. There were rumored engagements with director George Hill and Jackie Oakey, even a romance with the still-married Tom Mix, though it doesn't seem to have hurt her reputation. It kind of worked for the type that she played. Unfortunately for Gwen, the transition to sound wasn't a smooth one. In 1931, MGM released her from her contract. It was the start of a pretty rough period for Gwen, as not only was she now studio-less, but the next year her mother tried to put her in a conservatorship. It does seem that Gwen was suddenly acting erratically, as she also was sued by two stores for non-payment of goods, and her mother was worried she was unable to handle her own affairs and personal effects. Her mom didn't end up going through with the conservatorship, but the case did make the newspapers. Gwen's career never got back on track, and it wasn't long before she was predominantly appearing in uncredited roles. In a letter called Uncrowned Queens, film fan Ruth Whitman Bowers wrote to Picture Play in 1934, Those actors and actresses known as featured players, whom the fans have loved and admired as much as any star, have saved so many pictures from mediocrity by the sparks of genius that sometimes come from even their smallest efforts. Gwen Lee, that tall, willowy, sometimes comic siren, does a bit now and then, and she was an honor to any cast. An honor to any cast or not, while at times it was close, and she was, for a few years anyway, a well-known face to film audiences. Gwen Lee was never a movie star proper, regardless of the Wampus predictions. Anne Christie. For the first time in its scintillating history, Al Christie boasts of a real Christie girl on his Christie lot. The little miss in question is sweet little Anne Christie, who has just been graduated from the obscure bit world to the famous or infamous leading lady existence, wrote Hollywood Topics in their January 22, 1927 edition. Anne, who was actually born Gladys Cronin, circa 1905, made her film debut in 1927 in an uncredited role in the Harry Langdon comedy Long Pants. Alongside, well apparently, although most of them are uncredited too, at least four other wampus babies of previous years. She did a couple of shorts before being selected, basically out of nowhere, to play Harold Lloyd's next leading lady in 1928's Speedy. 
It is clearly the promise of this film that got Anne on the Wampus list that year, as she hadn't done enough else to warrant attention. A straight step to fame via the route of leading lady for Harold Lloyd. Anne Christie is the latest ornament to grace that pedestal, with emulation of Bebe Daniels and Jobina Ralston no doubt ever before her, wrote Pitcher Play in the November 1927 issue. Apparently Harold selected her for the role based simply on her picture. You know, it turns out that maybe it's wise to cast films on just a smidge more than a nice picture. Okay, that's not quite fair. It wasn't really that she was so bad in Speedy. It's more that she was given dick all to do. Anne had nothing to prove herself with, and thus failed to make much of an impact even in a high-profile film. Something for the baby stars to worry about is who will be Harold Lloyd's next leading woman, said Screenland in their September 1928 issue. Harold hasn't said so, but it is agreed that it will not be Anne Christie. It was Barbara Kent. Speedy wasn't Anne's ticket to stardom, and frankly nothing else was either. She did get the lead in a serial called The Sporting Youth that ran for 12 episodes in 1929 and 1930, and found herself on the Senate lot doing plenty of shorts, but there was no straight step to fame at all. She made her final screen appearance in 1932 and married a wealthy Texas rancher the following year, starting a family and living the good life. According to her obituary, in her later life she became wild about the Wild West, and even bought a home in Tombstone, Arizona, specifically because it once belonged to Wyatt Earp's brother Virgil. Yeehaw! Obviously no, the Wampas weren't right about Anne Christie. Though it's true that one role can make a Hollywood career, it's far from a sure thing, even if that one role is, well, opposite Harold Lloyd, or as Lorelai Lee and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And just as often, it seems, not playing a role can be the breaking point. For Gwen Lee, that role never came along. For Alice Day, that role was impossible to take. Thank you for listening to the first part of 1928. I'll be back soon to tell you about the rest of the Wampus Baby Stars of that year. In the meantime, you can send me your thoughts, theoldmovielady at gmail.com, write me a review, leave me a rating, subscribe if you haven't already. You can find me on Instagram and on TikTok. Just don't wait outside my house. It gets dark so early these days. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.